Hey guys, welcome back on the macro trading floor. This is Alfonso Peccatello speaking. I mean, this is Alf speaking. <laughs> and this is Andreas Steno speaking. It's good to see you again, guys. Um, this is, as you well know by now, the most actionable macro podcast in the world. We are recording the 22nd of November. Um, it's almost Thanksgiving time. So... Um, we will allow our editors a few minutes to <laughs> to edit this podcast before it goes on air. Uh, so bear with us. Um, we will have a bit longer time frames in our discussions today as a consequence of that. I think that's safe to say, Alfonso, yes. before we get to the stuff. But in, in any case, I have some interesting observations um, when it comes to the market moves over the past, say, uh, five to ten trading days. Point number one. Interesting reversal in euro dollar. Um, it's sort of tried to kick through the 200-day moving average, and we are not a technical analyst podcast, but I'll get to why. Um, interesting price action, at least when it touched the 200-day moving average and went lower again. Um, and to me, there are a couple of things happening beneath the surface here that we should be aware of for the euro. First of all, uh, and we can guarantee you that sitting on European soil, it is now cold as beep here um, compared to just a few weeks ago. Um, and I think from a momentum perspective, that's obviously something to be aware of when it comes to both European inflation and European energy prices. Um, it's not a surprise per se that a winter will arrive, uh, but what matters here is the storage situation versus the flow situation for natural gas. Uh, and the only thing that sort of kept natural gas prices um, in the very front end of the of the curve low through October was that warm weather uh, and the uh, subsequent queue of, of LNG ships. And now we actually have withdrawal from gas storages from Germany for the first time this week. Um, that's a game changer to me. And secondly, I think it's noteworthy that we have such a difference in the way the inflation picture looks in Europe relative to the US. I, I did a study earlier this week on the spread between headline inflation and various core measures in the Eurozone versus the US. Um, and it's very safe to say that the spread between headline and core or the median CPI number in, in uh, the Eurozone is extremely elevated from a historical perspective. It's very rare that you see such a spread between core and headline. Um, and in the US, that spread has compressed quite materially over the past three um, inflation prints in a row. Um, as a consequence of goods prices coming down to service prices, if you, if you may. Um, and I think that's an interesting thing to note when it comes to the relative outlook for the European Central Bank versus the Federal Reserve. Because to me, I would actually argue that a core inflation at elevated levels close to the headline inflation is a stickier inflation picture than a headline inflation printing way above core as in Europe. Core may lack in Europe. We can get back to that discussion. But for now, I don't really see any reason why the ECB should outpace the Fed materially given that discrepancy in, um, in inflation. So first thing I'm going to say, Andreas, is that we are both wearing a T-shirt and you say that it's cold in Europe, but that's just because we're filthy rich and we can afford <laughs> radiators. No, just kidding. But it's, uh, it's true. The weather has changed for, for the worse very rapidly and there is depletion of gas reserves in Europe. Winter is long, so people got very excited about the warm weather in October, but ultimately you know, there is a chance we actually have to become meteorologists to predict the natural gas usage and therefore the energy security <laughs> in Europe. But hey... Let me add one thing. I, I spent probably two and a half to three hours um, looking at seasonality charts on the ice on, on the Arctic <laughs> today. That, that's as bizarre as it gets, right? But, but I mean, but, it's, it, it's important. But, but Andreas, I mean, the fun of macro is that it's a never-ending journey. And even becoming a meteorologist, it's part of it. I mean, it's, it's, it's fun. Now, the other thing is obviously that uh, core inflation in Europe has basically lagged core inflation trends in the U.S. so far by about six months. You can just overlay the two core inflation series in the U.S. and then give it a six-month lead and the EU one will look like the same. That's at least so far. Uh, what happens going forward depends on wages. I mean, to sustain higher core inflation, you need nominal wages in Europe to also rise pretty decently, right? So that, that, that spending on services and core goods can remain relatively elevated. 
That phenomenon has happened in the US, where nominal wages actually increased by 6 or 7%. But in Europe, the first round of wage negotiations, or at least uh, yeah, nominal wages, are not yet picking up that pace, Andreas. Correct me if I'm wrong. No, I mean, there are some pockets here and there, but uh, it, it's not an overall broad picture of rising, rapidly rising wages in Europe. I tend to agree with that, and I would be very surprised to see them above, say, 35 to 4% at the very max um, for, for next year. And, and the reason I say that is that the window of opportunity to negotiate higher wages is slowly but surely closing, if you ask me. Um, and uh, in the U.S., they had that opportunity ahead of the um, European peers. Uh, and, I mean, given what we see in the German industry, uh, given what we see in energy prices, I would argue that it will be trickier to convince employers to, to give material wage rises yes. this winter. Coming back to your main point, Andreas, having a forward interest rate curve in Europe, pricing a more aggressive European Central Bank over the next 12 to 18 months than the Federal Reserve, is a funny forward curve comparison between Euro and, and the US. It's something that I think has almost never realized over the last 10 to 15 years that the ECB was much more aggressive than the Fed. There, there was a very small window just ahead of Lehman. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was yeah, a, yeah. great decision making as always and great timing by the European Central Bank. But yes, I mean, it's relatively rare that the ECB outpaces the Federal Reserve and that's pricing forward curves. Um, it's, it's, to say the least, something interesting as a relative value yeah. trade proposition to put up or have a, have a look at. And, and, and do note that we, we had the largest month-over-month -month decline in the purchasing, um, or sorry, the purchase price index for uh, producers in, in Germany this week. Uh, the largest ever drop. I mean, obviously on the back of the largest increase ever on a month. But, um, and if you follow energy markets, it shouldn't be that big of, of a surprise. But anyway, it sort of caught the attention of markets. Uh, and if anything, what we've learned this year is that consumer prices, they tend to lack producer prices probably yeah. by a month or so. Andres, there's one other thing that really caught my attention this week is that um, the yield curve doesn't stop flattening. It doesn't stop <laughs> inverting. I mean, we are now, I, I think I, I keep posting on Twitter these charts of these two stands since the beginning of the year. I remember it was like plus 50 basis points and I said, I think the path of least resistance is that inverts. Um, and people are like, what's your target? Uh, minus 25 basis points. Wow, that's deep inversion. Okay, then we get there. Then it's minus 50. Then it's minus 75. And basically, we are now looking at Volcker era levels here. We're going for minus 100 basis point as we speak, which is pretty impressive, uh, to say the least. And also Powell's, is it allowed to say, bullshit uh, curve indicator. What, what was that? 18-month, 3-month, minus 3-month. Yeah, sure. That kind of stuff also inverted to negative 50, 60 basis points. So it's becoming pretty aggressive. What do you make of that? Well, frankly speaking, I don't think we're done <laughs> with that trend. And, and, and it sounds amazing. I, I mean, I recall the two of us having a discussion six months ago that this was a negative carry trade and whether we should continue to, <laughs> to have it on our books, basically. And um, we, we both agreed that it made sense to keep it on. Um, obviously, you're, you're peeing against the wind to a larger and larger extent than this trade, to say it the least, um, making it less attractive from a risk-reward perspective. But my base case would be that it inverts even further. Um, I think this is currently kind of a battle between the Fed trying to convince us that this is not Volcker, <laughs> if yeah. you know what I mean. Um, mm -hmm. And the yield curve at least partly hints that the Fed will capitulate, right? Will capitulate eventually. I think they've done a decent job at explaining us that through 2023, we will try to remain firmer for longer. But we still have um, implied probability of cuts priced in towards the end of the year, right, of 2023 mm -hmm. during the second half of the year. Uh, and to me, that's not, I mean, it, it, it's, it's not a green flag that the Fed has ultimately convinced us that they will remain firmer for longer, uh, given that pricing. Yeah. So it's kind of a battle between the market and the Fed right now. And I think the market has sort of exaggerated this a bit after Bostic and um, other members of the Fed started talking about slowing the pace of hikes. 
Yeah, there is uh, one thing I don't fully buy is that, especially on Twitter, I'm reading that the bond market is pricing a recession. No way. Uh, if you get a recession, you get two, three, four hundred basis point of cuts. And in the second half of 2023, we have meager 50 basis point of cuts being priced in. Yeah. You're right that the bond market becomes increasingly certain as a base case in 2024 that the Fed will have to keep cutting rates. But the velocity and the magnitude of those cuts being priced in are not resembling a recession. Yeah. They're resembling a weaker economic growth, weaker labor market where the Fed has to you know, stop being so tight. But this is not a cutting cycle. 50 basis points in six months, give me a break. That's not a cutting cycle that is consistent with the recession. Yeah. And one thing I would like to add on this yield curve, um, an inversion of uh, more than 100 basis points between the twos and the tens. We've only seen that a couple of, uh, of times over the past five decades. Um, yeah. And what happened subsequently after such an inversion was that the industrial cycle actually kicked back quite materially, um, probably as a consequence of the Fed actually fulfilling wishes of re-steepening the yield curve, right? So I think that is the uh, crossroads that we are standing at when it comes to equities. Um, we've seen markets try to trade into materials, industrials, energy not so much any longer, but some of these good old brown mm -hmm. equities relative to what we've been trading in 2020 and 2021. And my, my, my feeling is that it's partly based on historical energy um, analogs, right? Um, that they are looking towards what happened in similar inflation cases, what happened to the Fed during such inflationary periods, uh, and what happened to fiscal policy making after such a, uh, an inflationary period. And it seems as if the conclusion is that you should buy the industrial economy. And I tend to buy that as well. Shall we actually call somebody that can talk about equity sectors, Andreas? Yeah, let's do it. It is now my great pleasure to introduce Tommy Thornton to the macro trading floor. He's the founder of the Hedge Fund Telemetry, uh, and it's a great honor to host him at the macro trading floor. Welcome, Tommy. Thanks for having me. Um, it's uh, great to be here with you, and uh, I always enjoy uh, our conversations. Me too, Tommy. Um, I wanted, first of all, to get your take on the current volatility in the crypto space spilling over to uh, various other asset classes, for example, tech stocks to a certain extent. How do you manage risk in this kind of environment? I think that's a key question uh, currently. Right. Well, I, I'm not a you know crypto person um, at all. I, I'm you know casual observer of what's happened, and a lot has happened. Obviously, as everyone knows. Uh, Look, it's been it was built on something that didn't have a lot of transparency and you have a lot of characters that have come in and leverage gets involved and egos get involved and bad trading gets involved and prices go down and then there's liquidations. Um, look, it's a it's a really bad situation and it's it's a tragic situation for many people because a lot of people got sucked into this and they got they were blown up and FTX and Sam Bankman Freed and his girlfriend, um, you know, it's just nobody paid any attention to due diligence. And, you know, maybe that's a learning moment for a lot of people. I hope um, maybe there's going to be more due diligence. Maybe there'll be more regulation. Uh, you know, crypto was sort of the non-regulated. Uh, we don't need the Fed or we don't need regulation. And now that's starting to turn and change you've you've got a lot of different actors out there and you have these elephants out there that nobody knows and um for me i i've always thought look i, I don't know how to value crypto other than just truly by market sentiment and technicals so I, i've just i've always passed on it you know i trade or i i have um on hedge fund telemetry i use demark indicators and i've shown different signals here and there and you know i'm not actionable this is not actionable but we do have some new buy signals that have just crept up in the last couple days yesterday actually um i still think that it's there's risk i've said look if anybody's going to buy this fifteen you you're out stop and no questions asked um 
so that's kind of where I'm at. And a lot of people got over their skis as far as sizing, and I'm a big proponent of proper sizing, uh, especially with a high-risk type of environment uh, like we've had this year. And with what I tell people, I, I don't buy anything or short anything with more than a 5% uh, max position size uh, based on my assets. And as much as you know that sounds like, oh, well, you're not going to make any money, I've had a pretty good year this year. Uh, both long and short ideas, uh, I, and I trade generally uh, U.S. equities and ETFs and some futures here and there, and a couple option trades um, when I see foot fit, but um, that's the problem. Position sizing, leverage, um, and not having a good defined risk management um, regimen that people have followed, and that's caused a lot of heartache. Tommy, it's been probably one of the trickiest years in macro investing over the past couple of decades, but you've actually made a pretty decent return this year. Um, please take us through your thought process this year. How have you managed to pull through with a decent return in this kind of environment? Well, I knock on wood, you know, talking about, you know, having a good year, I'll probably have a 10% drawdown tomorrow or next week. Uh, still up though, very nicely for the year. Again, I've kept my sizing down. I've traded a lot this year, uh, both on the long side and short side. And as much as a lot of people think of me as a short seller, since I worked at a hedge fund for over 10 years and we were net short most of the time and made money, um, I've traded more on the long side uh, by far than the short side. I've sized my long small, smaller than my shorts. Uh, so I've made more money on the long side. Um, but traded a lot more on the long side. So I, I look for a lot of, you know, viable type of bottoms. And I combine a lot of different technical type of things. I use market sentiment stuff. I use daily sentiment index data, which sentiment, by the way, is a condition. It can stay oversold uh, for a longer period of time. And that's not a trigger. So I use DeMarc indicators, uh, some, some other technical indicators um, to catch those bottoms and catch tops as well. So that's generally how I've done it. And I shorten my time frames instead of just looking at a daily chart or a weekly chart or something like that. I look at 60 minute time frame charts and I post those three times a day. Tommy, we've had quite a comeback for risk assets basically through October and uh, into the beginning of November. Maybe as a consequence of markets starting to sniff out at least a deceleration in the uh, interest rate hikes from the Federal Reserve, what do you make of the equity market right now on an index level? Do you consider it overbought or what's sort of your gauge of the um, current situation in the equity space? Well, you know, one of the problems that happens uh, is that you, when, you, when you have these markets that go down, um, you start to lose the buy the dip people. Uh, each each bounce becomes a little bit more shallow, and people are less inclined to jump on board. And usually, when they do, it's after the fact. Uh, so right now, look, the market bounced off of a better than expected uh, cooler CPI re report on the, I think it was the tenth, and uh, we've held above. Like if I look at the SPY and the QQQ uh, as proxies, we've held above uh, just barely the uh, VWAP levels from exactly the moment when the report was released and the markets went bananas. Uh, so that is a positive right now. So the, and, and those levels, actually, I'm looking at my screen right now, 284 on the QQQ, and we're just below that now, and then 395-ish on the spiders. And the reason I look at that is because basically, if you're above that, the people are, that have bought, generally speaking with a large volume, are still making money. And those that are, when it starts to drip below that, those people start to feel like, uh-oh, I'm not making money as I had hoped. And the lower you go, it always motivates sellers a little bit more to exit. So yeah, we've had a nice rally. Uh, the Fed is... You know, there's there's this 
narrative out there that the Fed's going to pivot, and that's not going to happen. Step down to 50 basis points. Yeah, that was obviously going to happen. They're not going to keep raising at 75 basis points each meeting. They're starting to notice the CPI and inflation is coming down in certain places. It's not coming down that much, and it's going to take a lot longer. So my my view is that, okay, the, the market may get excited and buy the 50 basis points hike, but it's still 50 basis points, and we're still going to go longer uh, by hiking. On top of it, you don't hear enough about QT and how the Fed is reducing its balance sheet. And that is a really significant aspect of this because there's going to be no pivot and having or pivot to basically the Fed cutting rates again when they're trying to reduce their balance sheet. It would offset each other. And, you know, we've seen what happened in the UK when they tried to offset uh, different policies. Everything just goes nuts. Uh, so my, my thought is if the Fed starts to downshift and they raise rates by 50 or 25 basis points and the market gets excited by that, uh, there's going to come a time where the market's going to start thinking, you know something, it's starting to bite into the economy, it's starting to bite into inflation, uh, you know, the housing market's starting to really, really slow significantly, unemployment's starting to rise, um, that's going to take a lot longer, especially if the equity markets stay higher. So the Fed has actual cover to continue to raise rates aggressively as the market stays at 4,000 S&P. So it's kind of a conundrum. If the market got crushed and went down towards 3,000, I think there's going to be more evidence that the Fed can say, okay, we can start to slow down or stop raising rates. So that's it. You lift the market higher, the Fed's going to keep going. Um, so you're playing this game with the Fed. This episode is brought to you by Curve. Curve is a payments card company that empowers customers to control, direct, and maintain total visibility into their finances. By using Curve and adding your other cards to Curve's wallet, you unlock new value like cash flow management, self-driving money, and the ability to stack rewards. Think of Curve, guys, like one unique credit card that helps you maximize your rewards. Rather than add another card to your wallet, Curve instead combines your cards into one. And effectively, it will help you maximize your rewards. You'll also earn a 1% cashback on everything you buy for the next six months. And if you're trying to get on top of your cash flows, Curve is also very useful because being one unique credit card, it consolidates multiple credit cards and multiple cash flows into one single place. You are eligible to receive $20 in Curve Cash to be credited to your Curve account within 14 days of you downloading the Curve app through the referral link and making your first purchase. So go have a look at tmtf.link slash curve. Yes, so guys, the referral link to get the $20 in Curve Cash back is tmtf.link slash curve i've been leaning short recently myself in my own portfolio i guess the average person i speak to right now leans in a very bearish way um and various sentiment indicators point towards probably the most bearish sentiment in decades so given your assessment um of the positioning out there uh the sentiment among your speaking partners how do you view the average positioning out there and is it an issue for those expecting equities to drop into next year well i think there's a lot of people out there that are trying to state that the market's bottomed and i mm -hmm. i it, it could it could have bottomed uh but i think we're going to be in a bit of a trading range for maybe the next year and the s p could be up you know it could be at 3500 to 4000 and back and forth um you know, maybe three or four times next year. I'm not necessarily sure we're going to go to a new low. Uh, I don't believe we've seen any form of capitulation. There's really no fear out there. There's been no panic in the market. Uh, we've seen, you know, panic in, in crypto and some derivative places out there in the market and some tech names have been hit. But you also have tech names that are reporting still not so great earnings. 
and they're holding up okay. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm actually positioned right now um, fairly short for myself, and I still have about 25% in cash. I've kept a, you know, one thing that that's kept me, you know, calm. You know, one thing that everybody has to remember is you have to have a bit of a calmness to what you do, and keeping yourself calm means that you have position sizing in line with that calmness and having a high cash level keeps you calm. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I don't need to be just so balls out short or long, but I am short right now. Uh, I have some gains on the short side that uh, over the last week in some tech names, they're going up against me a little bit, but I, I feel like sized right. They're small. They're making money. Um, I can have a little bit of wiggle room right now. So I'm uh I'm just, I should also mention, I've been fighting a, a cold for the last week, so if I um, am dipping into my warm tea and sound a little nasally, um, that's what's uh, been going on uh, right now. But I honestly, I think that uh, it's hard to be set up short going into uh, December. December is a seasonal positive, good, strong period. Uh, I, I just, I'm not sure that... Um, that's going to play out this year. Seasonality has not worked at all this year. And so sometimes when you have those types of years, you just got to throw that one out. I, I wanted to, to elaborate a bit on that topic of seasonality. Um, you've been running money for, um, for quite a while, Tommy. You've been working at hedge funds. Uh, so you know about these seasonal patterns um, and you've probably been a part of uh, these seasonal patterns yourself, if you know what I mean. So let's, let's take a look at what actually drives these seasonal patterns in your view. Uh, I mean, given that at least a lot of hedge funds have been playing interest rates on the short side. So they've uh, basically sold bonds into this interest rate spike uh, through this year. I tend to think that we've seen some uh, short covering of, of those positions in recent weeks, maybe as hedge fund managers, they want to close the year with a positive return um, ahead of, uh, of 2023. In equity space, uh, I guess the average position in hedge funds has been on the short side through the year, at least leaning short. So that could be another reason why they close the books in the current scenario to just secure a positive return for the year. Is that how it works in reality is it position squaring ahead of the new years that drives seasonality yeah i would say i would say there's a, a a lot of that i remember um at our fund we would basically come late november uh we all were starting to look at okay it was like bonus time and you know what we were going to get for the year and you know had our fingers crossed and um the principals of the firm would would really want to take down risk in December and enjoy, if we had a, you know, we're having a good year, uh, they'd want to enjoy their vacations and they would take a couple weeks off. And then, you know, us that didn't leave the desk um, or couldn't leave the desk would be there just trying to manage the positions uh, for the end of the year. And it would get, you know, relatively quiet. Uh, but I think there's a lot of money managers that have had good years. And I think there's a lot that have had bad years and are just wanting to, you know, get to the new year and then say, okay, let's reset the, reset the clock. Tommy, if we look at uh, various equity sectors, you, you mentioned uh, the technology sector as an interesting sector um, when it comes to price action over the past couple of weeks. Uh, we obviously had a string of uh, rather negative um, messages from, for example, Meta, Uh, or Facebook rather, um, and and such companies over the course of, was it the early part of November? So what do you make of that sector overall? And uh, are there any specific names that you're watching currently price action wise? Well, ironically, I'm I'm long meta right now. <laughs> um, I bought it when it was down and I bought a bunch of different tech names when they were down and I basically jettisoned those as longs and I'm now set up short, um, fairly short in with semiconductors. And I, I believe that there's still a, way too many people thinking that there, there's some positives that are in the semiconductor space. Uh, you've seen really negative news. Um, Micron, Nvidia, AMD, they're, they're talking about large inventories. I mean, Micron just came out and said that they're, they're cutting CapEx 
which hits LAM Research, ASML, uh, KLA 10 core. Uh, those, uh, those are also being hit because of what's happening with uh, the Biden administration, with China, restricting the sales to China. Uh, those are those are really significant factors, and you know the, the I, I will say this too: the semiconductor companies have anticipated this. They've done everything in their power to um, try and manage through this. But the fact is, there's still too many, uh, there's still too much inventory out there. And if we do go into a recession, uh, technology it's like holding like buying bananas and or having bananas on your shelf. Um, they just start to turn brown when you have that inventory, and it it gets it gets very stale, and that uh, they have to move that inventory, and that will mean cutting production, uh, discounting, and pricing will come down. So it, I I still see that happening. Uh, one other thing, we we used to track unemployment really really closely, and if you you're starting to see tech companies. Uh, Fidelity came out today and had some big layoffs. Uh, that actually matters for technology because if they're laying off people, they're not buying more technology. They're not buying more PCs. They're bu not buying laptops, uh, phones. I'm short Apple right now, and I'm really a little bit surprised that um, the stock is at 150 uh, or just you know around 150. Uh, because they have a problem. Um, they they just came out with their new phone um, in September. It didn't really come out of the gate strong, even though there's, you know, it's the same case, it's, you know, it's the same case as this, a uh, little better camera, better, faster, you know, cuter girlfriend type thing. But I don't need a new girlfriend. I've got this one. It works fine. And I don't want to spend $1,200 on an upgrade, you know, just for a better camera. I think also what's going on in China is going to affect Apple's earnings. And it's going to be a big tell because if that gives up, and it, it I think, when did they guide down? I think it was 2018 or 19. They guided down because uh, the demand wasn't there. Uh, they, they've, they've made very few, you know, a couple of subtle uh, announcements. They're, they did a special uh, discount on, PC, on on their laptops or iPads, uh, trying to move product. Um, if you go to any of the uh, phone companies, AT&T, Verizon, here in the U.S., uh, there's discounts. You can get discounts on them pretty easily. That tells me that the, the channel might be pretty stuffed. Then, one more thing, and I'm not a football person, uh, and we have the World Cup, and our tech analysts used to always track uh, phone sales. It used to be Nokia and BlackBerry and then Apple. Around the World Cup, technology sales and especially phone sales slow down dramatically. And I don't know exactly why, but I, I would imagine that everyone is, they're not, they're so glued to their TVs and the phones they already have that they don't need to go out and buy any new technology. It's hitting at a different time, too, where it's holiday season. So if holiday sales are a little slower, partly because of the economy, inflation, blah, 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 it might also be a bit of a World Cup situation happening right when, when the, the holiday season is starting for shopping. So it's something I'm, I'm watching. I, I haven't really... Heard anybody else talk about that? That's, that's are you really buying a new phone? Or are you watching football? <laughs> I'm watching football, and thanks for calling it football. I I saw someone tweeting that as long as your dollar is trading above parity, we can call it football, and when it trades below parity, we can call it <laughs> soccer again. So, yeah. Well, I, but, I, I I'm I'm a huge um, United States football fan as well. So, um, but I do I do enjoy the World Cup, and um, it was uh, today was the big uh, Saudi Arabia beat um, Argentina, which was stunning. And uh, I love that about the World Cup because you can get some crazy results. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, I watched that game. It was quite the surprise. But Tommy, given your views on technology 
um, I wanted to, to move on and ask you about some of the, say, parts of the good old brown economy that have performed this year. Energy is up. Is it more than 60% year to date uh, on an index level? We've seen a, quite a resurgence in industrials and materials over the past, uh, say, a month and a half. Um, so some of these sectors that typically perform in a industrial upswing, right? So what do you make of that given the lackluster outlook for growth? Uh, we have performing sectors that typically perform during an upswing. What's going on? Right. Well, I was just looking up on my screen up there. The XLE is up 66% uh, year over year, up 67% for the year. That's pretty stunning. Yeah. Uh, I, I've been long uh, from time to time energy stocks. Uh, I recently took some profits on them a little early. It's okay. If I take profits a little early, um, nobody's gonna, nobody should get mad at me. I'm going to try and do it a lot. Um, but I'd like to buy energy a little lower. Uh, they just aren't giving me the opportunity to do that. I thought we had that. Uh, you know, look, I, I just watching the action with crude is very, very uh, concerning. Uh, we came really close to breaking to new lows, and I don't know what the output. Um, I'm not an expert as far as it, what's going to happen with uh, OPEC and Saudi Arabia and output, and what's going to happen with, uh, with with what's happening in in Ukraine. Um, I'm not really as versed that in that way, but I do believe that going back to seasonality, my favorite time to buy energy is in mid-January mid into early February, and there is a very pronounced uh, trend that see energy expand through May. So I'm, I'm watching that. It's a bit overbought right now, uh, but you know certainly all the companies are executing really, really well. So tell me, if we boil it all down to a sort of assessment of the short-term risk reward of going long or short various U.S. equity sectors. Um, that's basically what you do the most and also single stock names, obviously. What would be your best risk reward trade right now and why? I think my most highest conviction right now is the staying short the S&P and NASDAQ right now and I, I I'm basing that because the volatility index the VIX is is super low we will probably have a DeMarc uh, buy signal uh, by the time this is released and it most likely tomorrow um, or on Friday and for me that is a big tell and Volatility, the VIX has gone down and everybody says it's broken and in, in some regards it is uh, because there's so much short dated uh, options, zero, um, you know, zero days to expiration, one day to expiration. And that skews a lot of the data and a lot of people aren't buying longer term volatility uh, because of that. And a lot of funds, as we talked about earlier, are sitting in cash trying to just get through the end of the year but I do believe there could be some um, tail risk uh, with something I'm not quite sure but things are getting to a point and stretched with that volatility index that something could could snap and I'm not sure what hmm. that may be advice in itself be cautious and watch out for a potential tail risk already into year end yeah, I, I, I really think that, and and look, if I'm wrong, I, 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 I'm the first one to admit I'm wrong, and I'll, you know, adjust positioning. But just watching some of the things and how they're lining up, it's giving me a bit of caution, uh, especially as I see the S and P near four thousand. Uh, I just believe that um, it's 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 building to a place where there is that potential for a snap, especially with the short dated options that are being bought. And if that gets unwound real quickly, um, 
you could you could get some sort of even a flash crash type type situation. Tommy, it's uh, it's been a pleasure as always to host you. Um, and before I leave you, I will allow you to briefly um, tell the audience where they can find out more about hedge fund telemetry and uh, and yourself. Well, I I operate uh, for the last five years a website called Hedge Fund Telemetry. Uh, we put out three notes a day, uh, several on the weekend. Uh, it's it's technically based. Uh, I do a lot of DeMarc indicator type information, market sentiment, some momentum stuff. Uh, we have a trade ideas section. Uh, and if you're interested, um, I have a discount uh, that I, you can use. Uh, if you sign up, you get 250 off the full year, 750. Uh, if you use profit as the code at checkout for the, the annual rate. So, and, um, you know, it's a pleasure for me to do what I do every day. And um, it's a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you, Tommy. And uh, we wish you a speedy recovery from the uh, COVID Thank you. you're suffering from. Yeah, I almost lost it there in the middle of, uh, <laughs> in the middle of this. So uh, talk to you soon. And um, as always, uh, great to chat. Thank you, Tommy. Back at the uh, macro trading floor, guys. Um, it was a pleasure to host Tommy Thornton, and uh, we wish him a speedy recovery from the cold that he was suffering from. Um, but in any case, um, great guy, great track record. Um, obviously, a classic long short equity guy, and that's also what you can hear uh, from from his interview. He's always looking for that long short opportunity within a sector, um, mispricings when it comes to price earnings uh, across sectors and stuff like that. Um, so I have three takeaways. Uh, first of all, he doesn't really buy the seasonality effect this year. So the effect that uh, funds close down positions to, to take a long vacation. Um, we can get back to that, Alfonso. <laughs> I want a long vacation, but uh, I'm, I'm not enough in the money, to be honest. <laughs> um, second thing is that he's leaning short tech. Um, and he's talking specifically about a few of the big fangs. Uh, and um, I mean... It seems kind of like a consensus trade, but let's get back to it. So clearly leading short tech as a trade. So SQQQ uh, as the expression in the ETF space. I have that position on, to be honest. Uh, and thirdly, um, he likes to, to, to buy a bit of protection for his views, it seems, uh, via a, a long position in volatility. Um, as sort of a tail risk could unfold before New Year's, um, he, finds, he finds it to be too calm given what's sort of uh, going on around the globe and given what's going on in positioning. So Elf, short tech, long vol. How does that sound to you? Um, so let's say short tech, yeah, it depends on your time horizon, but uh, you will find a big fan here in uh, being short the equity market. We discussed in this podcast, Andreas, as S&P above 4,100 starts to become pretty thin air looking at earnings consensus being too rosy and then applying a multiple and a more reasonable earning per share next year puts you in a base case, I think, that is maybe in the 3,500 area. And 41 is several standard deviation above that, several layers above that when it comes to optimism being priced in. So that can be applied as well to, to the Nasdaq, if you ask me, uh, or to QQQ. Um, the earnings cycle is going to hit as well the fangs, and we have already seen evidence of that, by the way. I wouldn't be surprised to see further downsides in Amazon or even Apple or other big companies' earnings into next year. Um, so that actually uh, finds me uh, aligned with, uh, with Tommy. I don't have the trade on the book yet. I'm waiting for a year-end rally if we get one to actually position myself short, which brings me to the second point, which is volatility hedge into, into year-end. So I don't have the one-month vols in front of me, but last time I looked at one- and three-month vol, um, first of all, they're not particularly cheap, neither no. on the downside nor on the upside. But the most interesting thing was that upside calls are much more uh, expensive than downside calls. So the ratio, basically, of implied volatility for calls against implied volatility for puts out of the money it's very, very expensive for calls, historically speaking. So it seems like there are there is a lot of demand to try and hedge against this, this Santa Claus rally, end of year rally. So, I mean, uh, Tommy can uh, decide and play for that, but he's, he's paying quite some money to be uh, in that trade. Mm. Yeah, 
and uh, a fair point when it comes to um, to volatility. You obviously always need to measure it against what you're paying for it. Um, I, I I have a couple of observations that I would like to share with you from the interview as well, because um, Tommy um, refers to high frequency data on spending ahead of the um, the holiday season, uh -huh. uh, and obviously we're. Um, at the beginning of the so-called Black Week, uh, with uh, a lot of discounts, etc., in stores, um, and it's it's hard to say um, today whether this will be a success or not this uh, Black Friday. But in any case, it is a great gauge of whether demand is taking a hit, right? Because we will we will get some of these early uh, hints early next week whether this was a terrific or a poor uh, black week when it comes to uh, retail sales, right? And I, I, I have to admit that I share the same feeling as, as, as Tommy um, when it comes to, to, to demand uh, in, in, in the retail space. Um, I know it from the region that I am placed in. So we have access to high frequency data on card spending. Um, and over the past three to four weeks, we've seen a very sharp drop in spending uh, and spending otherwise held up terrifically in Scandinavia. Uh, so something is ongoing now. Um, and I guess from a seasonal perspective, you would expect uh, the period from now and on to Christmas to be one of the, one of the booms of the year, right? Mm -hmm. And if that fails, then it is something that will show up in GDP numbers um, via the retail sales channel. So at least from where I'm placed, Sweden, Denmark, Norway, we can see the signs of mm -hmm. clear demand destruction in, re in the retail space now. And I actually think the retail sector is at risk now um, as a consequence of this. Yeah, it's a very interesting point, Andres. And I was discussing with um, my friend and excellent macro analyst, Eric Basmajan of EPB Research today. And um, both Eric and I, also you as well, posted a similar chart for Europe, if I'm not mistaken, about real inflation-adjusted retail sales. So if you look at those, actually, both in Europe and in the US, you're looking at a flatlining trend at best for now a year and a half. So basically, the volume of sales hasn't gone up. Total nominal value of sales has gone up, of course, because prices have gone up. And if you need to buy the same item at a more expensive price, then also the nominal retail sale will go up. But the real inflation-adjusted retail sales haven't really gone up. In China, they are uh, actually they are, I think, unchanged for two and a half years now. I mean, <laughs> we are looking at, at inflation-adjusted trends of spending, which are not very encouraging. But now you're talking even about nominal pace of spending, which drops, which in an inflationary environment is quite an interesting backdrop. But I guess we see it now uh, in inventories. Uh, so if you inflation adjust inventories, they also show signs of picking up. Um, you need to inflation adjust inventories, of course, as well, course. Uh, because the price of inventories will also go up during an inflation environment. Um, and therefore, I think what's clearly happening right now, and someone's calling you now, Alf, but I'm sorry. <laughs> no worries at all. Um, I think what's clearly happening right now is that we see that uh, orders backlog being put in by Amazon and other big retailers hitting them as a consequence of volumes dropping, but not nominal sales yeah. uh, to any certain extent um, or to any major extent so far. Uh, and I guess when you start to see volumes dropping, but nominal sales sort of keeping up, then I would at least expect the next leg to be lower in nominal spending. Um, at least it's not higher <laughs> when, when you see that kind of pattern unfolding. And another way to, to, to look at this is to look at inventories in, um, in semiconductors, also on the rise. Uh, we, we get uh, clear signals from NVIDIA um, and so on from, from, uh, from the semi front. Um, and I guess that's a clear signal that we're not buying as many iPhones, we're not buying as many desktops, we're not buying as many laptops, etc. Um, so everything related to retail demand looks bad now on, on mean, a live gauge. Andreas, the last thing I want to say about this is that um, in every cycle you have different lead and lag time, but the process is always the same. You get long forward-leading indicators moving, then more shorter-term forward-leading indicators moving, then coincident indicators moving, and then finally the lagging stuff, you know, the more lagging stuff like GDP or inflation finally moves. 
I honestly wouldn't see why this cycle is different. So the way I like to put it is, in 2021, you saw the economy and markets reacting to the fiscal and monetary stimulus of 2020. Yes. So first the following indicators up, then GDP up, spending up, earnings up, equity up, etc., etc. Tell me why in 2023 we shouldn't see the economy and markets reflecting the very sharp tightening in monetary and fiscal policy we saw in 2022. To me, it doesn't make any sense why this chain wouldn't unfold again this time. I, I uh, remember writing an article in the first week of April 2020 um, saying that the liquidity injection, uh, which I, by the way, consider the biggest, liquid, the biggest liquidity event since NOAA, <laughs> was, was, um, was basically of such an extent that you would expect the biggest build-up in history of, 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 um, of equity markets to happen within a time frame of 24 months after that. Um, I I remember it being posted on Zero Hedge, getting, uh, I mean, a couple of million hits, um, because at that time it was so contrarian to say that, and I was completely bearish on equities at the time. But I just said at some point there will be a massive what we call a ketchup effect in Denmark <laughs> as a consequence of that. And and frankly speaking, right now we are withdrawing those dollars at the large sort of the, at the swiftest pace in history. Probably not as a percent of the balance sheet size, but at least in nominal terms, without a doubt, the biggest, pay, the largest pace in history. Uh, so at some point, that will also have to kick in. Yeah, but don't worry. Earnings are priced to grow 5% next year, and the bond market is pricing a 50 basis point cutting cycle in the second half of next year. It's, of course, pricing a direction of travel, which is more negative than it was in 2022. That's very clear. But I think the magnitude of what's priced in, it's not correctly reflecting what you're just discussing. Andreas, instead of playing Dr. Doom and Gloom for another five minutes, um, why don't we close by um, telling people that if they want to find more about your work, how can they do that? Well, they could go to stenoresearch.com. Uh, otherwise, they can find my Substack Steno Signals or find me on Twitter. Um, open for business, as I usually say. Um, we do consulting for um, family offices, hedge funds, etc. Um, so uh, please, um, yeah, please contact me if you're interested. And uh, I know you um, want to say a few words as well. Yeah, for me, it's the Macro Compass. There is a free sub stack. You guys can still go and have a look at that. It's called the Macro Compass, not the news. There are also premium products um, on the website, which is the macrocompass.com. Also consulting available, uh, bespoke for family offices, investors, hedge funds, and so on and so forth. Check us out, guys. In case you want to do some business, we're happy to do so. And thanks again. And we're happy to do it jointly. Oh, why um, not? As well, if, uh, if you're interested. In any case, we see you again next Sunday. And uh, hope you had a great Thanksgiving when you listen to this. Ciao, guys. Ciao.